Welcome to The Better Build. Today's episode is a conversation between the mission co-founders, COO Gabriel Sunderum, CEO Stefan Rossi, and CTO Fred Brunel. So get ready to enjoy an excellent roundtable on topics like what makes the ideal engineering environment, the value of data, and how even the best engineers can leverage that data to keep leveling up. Enjoy the episode. Maybe we can just start with intros. I'll go quickly. Gabriel Sundaram, COO, co-founder of Mission. I've been with Mission for now about two years and a half. Uh, I started working with Mission initially as an advisor. I was at that time head of product at bus.com, CEO and head of product at bus.com. Reconnected with Steph and Fred as they were starting to build Mission and fell in love with the model. I wanted to get involved as an advisor, fell so much in love that I wanted to get involved full-time. So jumped on board as part of the founding team. That's me. Who's next? Steph, who are you? Yeah, sure. Stefan, I will see you in Kofora Mission. I'm uh, born in France, in Montreal since 2011, uh, Canadian citizen. Yeah. Software engineer, first turn entrepreneur, spent the, the last decade starting projects and, you know, eventually some of them became companies. Uh, I sold my last startup in 2016 and actually it was in 2018 that I met with Fred and we decided to, to build mission together. Awesome. Thanks. Fred, uh, what I didn't mention at the, at, uh, in my intro is the way I reconnected with you guys is you were mentoring my CTO at bus.com, uh, Marte Provence. And, uh, you know, I think you've worked with a lot of CTOs in, in town. You're kind of, uh, one of the more senior engineers that a lot of CTOs kind of go to for advice, a little bit about your background. Yeah. And I'm, uh, Fred Brunel, I'm the CTO and co-founder and, um, Yes, for me, I'm, I've been in tech for like, uh, you know, 25 years. And same thing as Steph, I was uh, born in France. I moved to Montreal in 2007 and I started my own uh, dev shop for doing mobile application at the beginning of the iPhone. And uh, yeah, I operated this for like maybe five years. And after that, I moved on to other things. I joined like one of our clients, biggest client for a while before uh, moving on to mission because we totally saw like a gap in the market with my experience as uh, being an operator of a dev shop. So that's why we started to experiment this in uh, 20, uh, 2018 and that became mission eventually. Steph, you've talked to me about how you kind of saw a pattern across your friends in terms of senior engineers choosing to go down the path of yeah. being independent engineers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Actually, we spread, we, actually, we, I think we saw uh, two, uh, emerging trends and you just have to, you just have to realize it was pre-COVID, right? Uh, mm. So the world was not uh, fully remote like it is right now. Uh, the first trend that we, that we saw that was happening was that, yeah, the most senior engineers we know in our network were becoming independent engineers. And actually what we saw is that you know more generally is that knowledge workers uh, were becoming free agents because actually they were better building a reputation inside a community rather than building a career at a company so that was number one and the number two is what fred just said you know it's the necessity for companies to become more agile 
when it comes to access software engineering talents. We thought that there was better way to access software engineering capabilities for 99% of the, the companies in the world, right? So basically the two things we, we saw pretty quickly. Yeah. And, I, and I feel also like we saw a gap where we saw a disconnect between hiring, but engineers don't like the experience of being hired. It's a bit complicated. Then when you're in a company, not every company is a tech company, but they need to be because we need to build a product. So they have to hire engineers. And sometimes these companies actually, they're not geared to put like a support structure around engineers. So they're very bit confused why actually nothing is working or actually they're having a, a lot of trouble to make things move forward. Main problem is unless you're working at one of the biggest tech company in the world, most of the time, you don't have the best environment to work when you are an engineer, right? Uh, and this is something like the biggest tech companies, I think I've known for quite a long time, you know, and this is why they've been investing massively in building this environment. And mm. when I'm talking about environment, it's not just the stack that they're providing to our engineers, but it's all like Fred was mentioning the support. The structure of the teams with engineering management, the career development path that also that we have, you have access to when you're working at Google or Facebook. This is all the mentoring, the coaching that they have access to. And all of that make it great to work at this company. Yeah, it's pretty crazy when you think about how much of a competitive advantage the FANG companies have, Facebook, Apple, Amazon. Netflix, Google, plus other tech companies in terms of their knowledge of how to source, screen, manage, and train engineers, right? In terms of the training, in terms of the roundtable discussions, the guest speakers, the technology, like all of these things are hard to do unless you're at a certain scale. And yeah. so it's pretty interesting when you think about how much of a competitive advantage or a monopoly in some ways that these companies have in terms of engineering capability versus the rest of the world. And we're talking about other tech companies. You can't even imagine, or I can't even imagine for non-tech companies that need to build software. And so if you believe that every company is becoming a software company, you know, how are they going to build software when even tech companies can't figure out how to do it at scale? Yeah, more percent. You can seriously wonder how they're going to keep on attracting talents, you know, because I mean, if you're a good engineer and if you have the, the choice between a brick and mortar company and a tech company, well, I mean, I think that it's a, it's an easy choice, right? Those companies, they don't have the budget, they don't have uh, the manpower, they don't have the bandwidth to, to invest in building this environment. This is what you were saying. You were working at the tech company, but you are main objective as a company was to serve your best customers the best you can. Yeah. And only yeah. just this mission is, is just massive, right? But you, you, could yeah. not, like, you could not like allocate, I don't know, 50% of your staff just building the right environment for your engineer, right? Yeah, you uh, don't get to that scale where you can focus on internally. Like it's hard exactly. enough to build a great product for your external customers. And then you have internal customers, so whether that's the sales team, success team, marketing team that you got to service, the engineering team always seems to be the last one that gets to spend time, right. you know, working on improving their own function. And so it's, it's pretty interesting to think that's a problem that I'm sure most tech companies have, especially early and growth stage companies. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah. And I think people don't, don't necessarily have the knowledge also to do it well. In my previous experience, for example, like uh, a lot of people don't understand agile because they read a book you know, at some point, you know, the, the problem is like the value of training is, is super underrated, really underrated mm-hmm. because people think that because they are supposedly engineers, that they're already fully trained up to date and everything, but it's really, really not the case most of the time. So you have to train. The, the people that you hire to be able like, to, to follow your own process, your rules, the way you work, you know, that's exactly what Facebook and Google is doing for like at least the one to six months when you first hire, you're being in training to learn what is Facebook? How do you work at Facebook? How do you get, uh, you know, performance review and everything? Most of the, or the other company, they don't do that. Actually, they just throw you into the fire and they don't understand that, uh, you know, they need to be a training. I remember at a previous company, I insisted that you have an agile training. So for a lot of people, they were like, yeah, we don't need this. We know how it's done. But when we finally got the training, it was eye-opening for everyone. They didn't know, actually, that it's like it was a new perspective, especially as a team. You retrain everybody in the same room uh, with the same people that you're going to work for every day. It's a totally different experience. And having a refresher on that kind of methodology and everything goes a long way. And people forget about this. Definitely the structured learning is an important component. And I think you both alluded to just the opportunity to learn from other peers, right? And you have this, you know, this peer group of other engineers that you can lean on uh, versus if you're working directly for that company, you won't have that same network around you. Yeah. And ideally what this kind of pool of people that get constantly trained, that you could go back in training, go back on mission, go back on training, go back on mission. Mm -hmm. To be able actually to keep actually your skills up to date in your process and everybody is going to have the same training. So yeah. everybody has mission is going to work the same. So when you go on the mission, you know what to expect and everything to standardize about that kind of thing, but at scale. I realized in my, in my career that I thought actually everybody was doing this by themselves because I was doing it. But yeah. I realized when I started working with other people, but we had a totally different way of seeing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally different way about how we seen, mm-hmm. how we seeing, like how we kept ourselves up to date, uh-huh. different techniques, different kind of way of doing things. And when you join a new company, that's kind of a shock because actually you're going to meet people that work differently from you. And it's going to take time actually for everybody actually to be on the same pace. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, just to build up you know, training and learning, you know, as an engineer, I think that as an entrepreneur, as an engineer, you know, I came to realize that I think there's a real misconception on what is training or coaching for engineers, uh, because it's not just about being better at your stack, be better at no. coding. Most of the time, what you re- realize is that what you don't learn uh, in an engineering school or even in early in your career is how to work together as a team of engineers, you know, how to collaborate properly. Nobody is going to teach you that, right? And I think that most of the time, engineers fail not because they're not good at their stack, not they're, they're not good programmers, right? They fail because they don't know how to cooperate properly. They don't know how to be a good team player, which means getting visibility to your team, meaning that 
committing and pushing small piece of code, knowing how to comment on a pull request, know, knowing how to use Git properly and how to implement a good CI, CD pipeline, which are foundational to, to software engineering. You're absolutely right. And I think Fred was alluding to it. When people think about software engineering and getting better, they mostly think about new technologies yeah. Yeah. Uh, and how to improve from a coding perspective. But at the end of the day, it's people that are building software, right? And so the human component yeah. is so important in the mix. And I've seen that in the roundtable discussions that we have with engineers. The topics often start very technical, but by the end of the conversation, it's always about a human dynamic. And how can I get my team to perform better? How can I get people to collaborate more efficiently, et cetera? Yeah. What you want as an engineer most of the time to face technical challenges, you want to be seen as an expert, you want to work with some other peers uh, that you respect, you know, non-jerks. <laughs> and, and actually you can have like, you can have all of that, you know, working in a brick and mortar company, you know, it doesn't mean because you're going to, to work at a startup that you're going to enjoy your day to day. That's very, very important. You know, as sexy as a mission can look, if you don't have the right environment, it's not fun mm -hmm. at all. And you can have a lot of fun working for, you know, as your example, a pig farm, uh, doing some technology and building technology for a pig farm. If you have the right environment, if you're working with cool people, this is how it is. We did a survey and talked to probably, you know, 100, 200 engineers and about yep. what they were actually looking for in terms of their you know, their, their perspective around work. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So outside making money, <laughs> because that's number one you, you do when you're working, right? You, you need to, to make a living, uh, of course. It was all about becoming a better engineer, becoming a better version of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I'm not surprised of that. I think good engineers want to constantly keep learning. Mm -hmm. That's what makes engineers great engineers, basically. They want to work with, in, in the right environment, with the right people, with the right opportunity that is a, mm -hmm. the right match for them. So it's, it's number one, it's all about uh, keeping up learning. And number two is about the environment they were, they're, going to work, uh, they're going to work on. So it's, uh, in some ways, it kind of mirrors Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's like yep. first thing, food and shelter. You have yes, to have an sure. opportunity where you can earn a living and, you know, get, get paid what you're worth, yep. but very quickly it starts to become other needs around learning, like you're saying, and, you know, having an impact and working on challenging problems so that you feel like you're having an impact. In some ways, it's great that we got the data that reinforces it, but I guess it's not surprising in some ways, because like you said, and I don't know if it's only related to software engineers, but I think it's, it's particularly true with software engineers. I think most people who are good at their craft care about getting better. That's part of, like you said, what makes them good is they care about their work and they care about, you know, surrounding themselves with a opportunity to get better at what they do. At the same time, I guess this year, last year, we heard some sad stories about people gaming the system, like as we mm. moved to this remote work world where they were able to take multiple jobs at the same time. Yep. And so surprisingly, there are some people that aren't as concerned about the value that they're actually driving and, and are just trying to surf the system in some ways. 
Yeah, man. Every time you have a system in place, somebody is going to try to take advantage of it. The Better Build is brought to you by Mission. Mission is an award-winning network of senior-level software engineers and product builders, backed by a platform that helps engineers continue to learn, grow, and connect. To get your team of fully managed, fully remote, and fully flexible software engineers, or to join our community, visit us at mission.dev. We actually never talked about it, but I think you know my brother is a software engineer. My father is an electrical engineer, so it seemed like I would have been on a path to become an engineer myself. But I remember the first time I tried coding on an Atari, I opened up the basic programming book and I put in... I think it was like 50 lines of code mm. and it created a circle on yeah. the screen. Yeah. And I, I said, this is it. Like <laughs> I, I spent all of this time to get a circle. And so I didn't get that bug to, to write software. Like what was it for you guys that got you excited to spend so much time in the early days, figuring out yeah, how to, like make this thing work and it wasn't as yeah. impactful as it is today. I think Fred, Fred you, got, you got the call already. Yeah, <laughs> I started programming at 10. Yeah. Oh, at 10, wow. But at 10, I would have been like, it was early, early 80s, so there was nothing. You remember the first thing that you coded yeah, and what the yeah. output was? But we were really lucky in France because at the, in the early 80s, actually, the, the government actually was really proactive with computer science. So we had computers in every school. So I was introduced really early on to computers. It was French computers at the time. We had our own technology, mm-hmm. which was actually not bad, actually, for what it was. And uh, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, it kind of clicked on me just to see, like, I was curious. I think I was definitely curious about how the machine worked. It was really fascinating to say, okay, I type here on the keyboard and I see this here. How do it work? You know? Mm-hmm. So I started to be really curious about the machine itself, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's how we started. I think every at the time, you ought to be interested in your hardware before you become a software engineer at the time, because hardware and software was so intertwined at the time. Yeah, intertwined, yeah. Really intertwined. To be able to make a program, you had to understand the hardware. Mm-hmm. Everything was so low level. You know, the kind of machine that we had access to were not Unix machines, really high level, very powerful computer at the time. You had access to really basically glorified calculators. You know, so you had to be interested into the machine itself to be able to make something work. Even the computer that I was using was a ZX Sinclair 81, which is really, really not powerful machine at all. It's like, mm-hmm. it's nothing, but it was good enough to a couple of things. So yeah, I was starting to do something at work. I was talking with friends with, with some computers and uh, it was really the beginning of it, but I was really curious about how it works. And the beginning, the beginning of the ADs was all about computers as well. You know, so the French government was smart enough to, to be able to, to, to encourage us, but I, I took the bug, actually. I started to be extremely curious about it. Video games started at the same time, you know. Mm-hmm. Really popular video games started to, to, to come there, and uh, I was just fascinated by the, the visual, the graphics, and I was like, mm-hmm. how, how does all this work? How do you put something yeah, on the yeah. screen? And yeah. it, it was, it was a, a toy at the beginning that was highly interactive. Yeah. That's Before interesting. She, yeah, before when you're a kid, actually, you have a toy, and that's the only yeah. thing you can do is the yeah. toy. Yeah. But this is a machine that actually, depending on what kind of program, you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So it was super interesting to see, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to try to understand this. Yeah, I think yeah. it's interesting because I don't know if everybody had that same perspective in terms of wanting to understand or being curious about how it was actually happening. 
Because yeah. I yeah. played a lot of video games as a kid, but I was focused on the video game itself. I wasn't curious yeah. or even very amazed how they were able to pull it off. Yeah. I was just like, oh, Pac-Man, Galactica, like yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll play these yeah, games. I was just super interested in the way how it works. That's why I started yeah. my career as a video game programmer. Yeah. And oh, the first thing I did with a computer was graphic programming. Hmm. I was really interested in graphic, real-time graphic, pro, uh, real-time interactivity and visual graphic programming. That's what I did from 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 the get-go, the first thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't program the spreadsheets and stuff like this. I wanted to program the games and visuals right. and everything. Yeah, because it was which more turned out to be Which turned out to be really highly technical at the time because these machines were not very powerful. So you really had to understand the hardware mm -hmm. if you wanted to make something that was fast enough to be interactive. We were talking about kind of the future of work, future of software engineering. Uh, Steph, I know you're doing a lot of work related to this area, but I'm curious to just get a sense of, you know, some of the things that you're seeing around how leveraging data could, could help engineers and engineering teams uh, perform better, but also be happier and get better at their craft. I think yeah. you said it. You said it to me once before. It's called computer science, but for yeah. some reason, for some reason, yeah, we so don't also. use data in in the practice of software engineering. Yeah, it's called computer science, not computer art. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if we if we've been able, by the way, to to make sales and marketing super data driven, there's a way to make it uh, to make software engineering data driven as well. You know. So what I'm seeing again, maybe something that people don't really know about those big tech companies is that they are data-driven mm -hmm. a lot, you know, and they're monitoring a lot of things that happen at the code repository level, but not just that. They're combining tons of metrics to understand the health of their engineering team. There is literacy, existing literacy about what makes, uh, what makes a great you know, engineering team in general. I think that Google has conducted like a pretty, pretty deep analysis on what makes an engineering team a performing team. As surprising as it can be, uh, at the end of the day, it was all about creating a safe environment for engineer where they can talk openly, when they can have, yes, very open uh, conversation, open debate, and not just on their work, but on their life, you know, it was about creating bonds between people and creating like a secure environment, you know, and I strongly believe in this, but there are many other metrics you can track and monitor to help your engineers become better engineers. When you're an engineer, you don't necessarily learn how to better, better collaborate with your teammates. One of the things that I think it's, it's worth tracking is your level of activity first at the code level, knowing that you're committing every day, every two days, every three days, understanding what kind of commits or pull requests you're opening and you're merging, trying to understand what you are doing as an engineer is super important. And it's super important because like I was saying, you know, if you don't do that properly, it's your, it's your team velocity that is going to drop. The thing is that if you're committing every week, one big commit, and for example, you open a pull request, you open a pull request, you're going to ask someone to review it, he's going to review it two weeks after, for example, you have to understand that as an engineer, I need to, con to switch context, you know, 
I, I was I was working on this task. My team lead uh, did not give me any feedback for weeks. You know, mm -hmm. it means that I have to go back to this work and to switch content and context. And as an engineer, it's a lot of waste of time. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so that's one. Then there's all the aspect of how are you feeling? You know, it's purely uh, HR metrics. If you want to understand how your team is doing and how they can perform better, you need to understand how motivated they are by the mission. What are the type of interaction they're having uh, as a team? You know, what they think of each other's, right? And based on all of this data, I think you can get some very, very, very interesting insights, right? But based on these insights, you have the choice of not doing anything, right? And this is, unfortunately, one thing that we saw we thread a long time ago, right? That this kind of engineering management platform, like Git Prime, they give you a tons of insight of how your team is performing. The major problem we saw is that very, very few people know how to interpret it, number one. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, they do nothing about it, right? So it's just not a question of access to data and metrics. What does that mean? And then what we're going to do about it, right? Because yeah. software by itself is not going to, to have a massive impact unless you hire the right people, unless you configure the system the right way, unless you interpret the data the right way, and unless you start to optimize how your team is performing based on the data. Just monitoring the number of line of code you're going to write as an engineer every day doesn't mean anything, right? That doesn't mean anything. The number of commit by itself doesn't mean anything, right? People inevitably say, but yeah, the engineers are going to game the system and, yeah. you know, optimize their data around. And yeah. so uh, is yeah. that is that actually a thing? It's not easy to game this because by definition, actually, the code you produce is going to be reviewed by other people. So if you try to game, for example, to pretend that you, uh, you insert like a lot of lines of code, Mm -hmm. And supposedly this code is supposed to be reviewed by tech leads by somebody else. So somebody right. is going to see what are you doing. So it's just garbage and it'll yeah, exactly. Happy. So, and, but if it's accepted, it says a lot of the tech lead and everything. So in the end, it's really, it's not that easy to game this. Right. And in the end, you have to produce a software that works. That's exactly. Right. You can, you can game the system only and only if you're tracking a single dimension. Yeah, right? exactly. If you're just tracking the, the line of code, yes. Okay, I, I can I can definitely uh, code uh, 10,000 uh, lines every day, you know. Yeah. I'm going to call some libraries. I'm going mm. to uh, copy past some code. And, you know, there, there's a way to game is, you know, yeah. obviously. But if you start tracking 360 review, so, I mean, if you start having like qualitative and quantitative analysis and uh, data, you know, in general, that's going to, to be completely different, right? Of course, if you were, one developer against a machine, you could you you could maybe game it, but actually it's the data that is being reviewed by the whole team. So your data is being published to everybody else. You know, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're being exposed very quickly. In the end, actually, it's, it's, this is not the kind of people that uh, we want to interact with. If you were mm -hmm. working at five different companies at the same time mm -hmm. and working, you know, at some point, something is going to show. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it definitely highlighted that there, there is potentially an issue in the industry where companies don't have a way to understand if the if the engineers are having impact or not on a day to day week yeah. basis, and needed to wait for 
cycles or sprints to yeah, several yeah. sprints to go by and things being delayed. To be honest, actually, this data thing actually came up from demands that we had at the beginning of the service. Actually, first, mm -hmm. before we did mission, we did a couple of uh, consulting work with some companies. And I remember one CEO asked us to ask me to come over to try to understand actually, because exactly, he, he, his software engineering team was really opaque to him. Mm -hmm. And he was like, are their, are their performance to the top? Where are they? If you mm -hmm. can give me a number of like, let's say 100 is Facebook, zero is like nothing. Where am I on the scale? Mm. And so it was really hard to, to answer him. Of course, mm -hmm. you know, I, I interviewed a lot of people, so I managed to, to gather some data point, but it makes me thinking that's interesting mm -hmm. because a lot of people and CEOs, they, they, don't, they have no idea where their team is on, on a very, you know, simple scale, yeah. really hard. Yeah. So when we started digging to the data, of course, you know, nothing is perfect. We're going to improve as we go and as we learn, we want, mm -hmm. but our goal was that, can we find a way to plot people on the map and also to guide the, this engineer saying, okay, this is where you are as a map. This mm -hmm. is where you are, this is where you need to yeah. be. At the end of the day, we're talking about gaming the system, short-term versus long-term. Engineers have to understand uh, is that if we're doing that, it's for their own good, right? Uh, because we want, we, we really care and we want to help them get better, right? Yeah. And if you, if you see where you stand in terms of performance, motivation, our people are seeing you as a teammate, you know what to improve. And at the end of the day, it removes bias, right? Mm -hmm. Because one thing that we wanted, we wanted to fight with Fred is bias, you know? We wanted to fight politic games. We want people to be seen as very good engineers because they're good at their craft, not yeah. because they're talking at the coffee machine with a VPN, right? Yeah. That's yeah. very, yeah, very yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And having data, having facts, that is the only way to do it at yeah, scale. Yeah. Yeah. If you are a very, very small team, you know, yes, yeah. you can manage yeah. to yeah. figure out. Yeah. But at scale, it's impossible. I don't know if it's a perfect analogy, but I tend to think of sports when we talk about data. Yeah. I think anyone who is great in sports and great at their profession has no problem with being tracked on every single stat, every single metric. Yeah. On the contrary, they want to be able to show the world what they yeah. can do. And they want to understand, like you're alluding to, where they stand relative to everyone yeah. else so they can get better. Yeah, right. that's true. If you look at any professional sport, you have a stats on every player. In basketball, it's not just about the number of points you get. It's the number of rebounds. It's the number yeah, of steals. Exactly. It's the number of assists. All of these stats help the players get better so they know where they need to focus. What I love about it is I've always felt that a lot of people have moved up in their career because they're great at interviewing. And there's a lot of great people out there who maybe haven't moved up in their career because they're not good at selling themselves. They're not good at, you know, they get nervous in an interview, but in the actual work environment, they're amazing at their craft. If there's a way to be able to capture that data, save that data and let people carry that information around with them, the actual work that they do is more valuable than their work experience. I don't care where you worked. I care about what the team members on the, in that company cared or thought about your work. And so I, I love that aspect of the transparency because if you, if you're good at what you do, it's going to show through that information. And I think that's, that's what you would want if, if you're actually good versus good at telling a story about how good you are.
Exactly. Good. We should work together. This is awesome. I'm excited. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening service. Stay connected with us on LinkedIn and visit our website, mission.dev, for more information on our network and platform. See you next episode.